This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from markfiore.com, The Green News Report, The Tom Hartman Show, Le Show, NPR, The Onion Radio News, and The Colbert Report with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from Need to Know. From a parallel universe, light years away, comes Little Green Man. Whoa, what's that? It's a mountain. I didn't know mountains were flat. Well, actually, it used to be a mountain. What happened to it? People blew it up to get to the coal underneath. See, we used to have lots of coal miners working underground to get the coal. But then, big corporations figured out it was easier and more profitable to just blow up the entire mountain and lay off the workers. So who does the work now? Well, big machines and a lot fewer workers, that's for sure. Those machines look expensive. Yeah, but there are plenty of banks to help coal companies buy them, and politicians to clear the way for them to blow up more mountains. Where do the mountains go? Into the valleys. But isn't that where the workers live and go fishing in the streams and stuff? Yeah, but the coal miners don't really need to live there anymore, do they? And you sure don't want to eat the fish. Plus, you'd be under tons of toxic rock if you stuck around, or flooded out if you were nearby. Why do you even need the coal? Because it makes energy, which makes life that much more enjoyable. You humans are dumber than rocks. Pew. From our What the Frack file, a new scientific study for the first time definitively links the controversial natural gas drilling technique known as hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, to contamination of nearby drinking water wells. Researchers from Duke University found water near gas wells were 17 times more likely to be contaminated by highly flammable methane, often at concentrations that posed an explosion risk for homeowners. Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu last week announced the formation of a scientific task force to study fracking and make recommendations to protect water supplies. But natural gas drilling companies have denied responsibility. Of course they have. Jeremy Wagoner is with us. Gas Gashole.movie.com is the website. The movie is called Gashole, um, which uh, evokes all kinds of interesting. Um, at first, I, I, had, I had assumed, Jeremy, that this was following up on gas land and uh, on fracking. But you, the gas that you're talking about here is actually gasoline, right? Yeah, that's right. We're actually talking, uh, really looking more at uh, crude oil prices, the history of the, uh, the crude oil industry, uh, and the disconnect between uh, the crude oil market and actually what you're paying at the pump. Now, right now, uh, oil, crude oil, I haven't checked today. I've got an app on my phone. I can do it. But it's about 100 and what? Uh, what is it selling for? Around $100 a barrel? We're, we're, yeah, we're, yeah we're, we're well above 100 We've been around 106 110 Yeah, okay. So uh, we're, in, we're somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, 
how much are the you know ExxonMobil and Shell and BP and these giant oil corporations that are reporting massive profits? I mean, so much so that we saw them. They actually lifted the stock market the day after Standards and Poor's said that they were going to downgrade the, the the U.S. because of the risk of the banks in part. Um, which everybody expected was going to crash the market by 500 points. Instead, it went up because of these guys all had these earnings reports. How much are they paying for oil? Well, the thing is, is they're not actually buying it on the crude oil market. So when that market goes skyrocketed, that's why they're, they're posting these huge profits, because they have long-term contracts with their partners where they drill the oil, or they just own the, the fields outright. So they drill the oil at, a, at what is essentially a fixed cost, they transport the oil, they sell it back to their own subsidiaries, and then they take it to the market. So then that crude oil market, when it's going crazy like this, their price is consistent, their cost is consistent, so their profits only go up when that price goes up. That's, that's uh, pretty remarkable. You know, in the um, used to be that the movie companies that produced the movies, also owned the retail theaters. So if you wanted to go to an MGM movie, you had to go to an MGM theater. If you wanted to go to a Warner Brothers movie, you had to go to a Warner Brothers theater. This is back in the 40s and, and early 50s. And, uh, and and sometimes only had one theater, and so you could only see some movies. And the movies, you know, the, 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 the theaters got to own basically the actors. They had them under contract, the whole star system. And the federal government came in and said, this is vertical integration of a market. This is a violation of, uh, the, the, in, in, if nothing else, the Sherman Antitrust Act. And you can't do this anymore. And it led to an explosion of creativity and productivity for the movie market and a dramatic lowering of price of what it cost to go to a movie. Same thing happened with television in the 1970s. And that led the first company, in fact, to step into the breach when, when they said to NBC, CBS, ABC, you can no longer solely manufacture the product that you retail through your TV stations. You have to buy from independent producers and allow them to participate was Mary Tyler Moore and Mary Tyler Moore Industries and Stephen J. Cannell and Hawaii Five-0 and all these. All, just, you know, it just led to this explosion. It seems to me like in the oil industry, you've got this exact same thing, vertical integration. They own everything from the, from the, from the hole in the ground to the retail gas station. How is that? Well, that's, that's exactly, it's exactly what we look at in the film. We look back at, at um, the rise of Standard Oil and the rise of Rockefeller, and what he had done is exactly what you're describing, is he completely took over the industry from when they pulled out of the ground till they take it, uh, take it to the pump. And then what happened is there's a remarkable, remarkable woman uh, back at the time before women could vote. Her name was Ida M. Tarbell, and she really exposed... Um, what Standard Oil had done, the really like the predatory business practices that they were doing to curtail competition, to buy out competitors and quash that. And she actually helped to, uh, she was, well, you know, in that muckraker movement and she helped to break up Standard Oil. Then what happens is Standard Oil is broken up into these companies that we now think about Exxon, BP, right. Chevron, Shell. All of these companies are actually sister companies because they used to be part of Standard Oil. Well, that was Teddy Roosevelt. He broke Standard Oil into 27 different companies. But but in the if if my recollection is right, but in the 18 late 1880s early 1890s when when Rockefeller was doing his business out of Ohio, Ohio said what you're doing is illegal with the Standard Oil Trust. So he said, mm -hmm. "Okay, what state will change their corporate charter laws to make what I'm doing legal?" And you had this competition on the East Coast between Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, and Delaware principally 
Delaware ended up with the least restrictive laws. New Jersey, however, ended up with John Rockefeller and Standard Oil. And, and, uh, and the consequence of this was that all the other industries were now able to vertically integrate just like oil had, and we had the, the, the rise of the barons. That's exactly what happened. And then when, when they actually broke up Standard Oil, all of the investors in Standard Oil got equal shares in all of the the new companies. And so within a short period of time, they actually made more money off of the breakup uh, of Standard Oil than they would have. Which is the exact uh, same thing that happened when Jerry Ford and Jimmy Carter broke up AT&T, by the way. And and so it happens over and over again. And then since that time, all of these, um, you know, starting in the 80s, really, all of these companies have then begun to merge or back together. So they're mm-hmm. really starting to re-coalesce yep. and, and get back to that Rockefeller well, that's uh, idea. That's because in 80, 82, 83, Reagan stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act, and no president since then has enforced that law. Well, that's 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 where we're at, and that's one of the one of the topics that we really try and look at at the okay. film. Okay, a couple of seeing, couple of, seeing how these companies really are still part and still so in, uh, integrated with each other. We're talking with Jeremy Wagoner. He is the co-director of Gashole, GasholeMovie.com. You can find out, you know, uh, where, how, when, you know, uh, get the movie. This is a remarkable piece of uh, filmmaking narrated by Peter Gallagher, featuring Joshua jo- Joshua Jackson. Um, you also talk about how the oil companies are buying up patents, manipulating gasoline supplies, intimidating inventors of green technology, that uh, we really don't need to be paying $5 a gallon for gasoline. In fact, we don't even need to be using gasoline. Um, Absolutely. Let me just throw it over to you here. for uh, we got about three minutes. Uh, we've, we really looked at a lot of different things. Um, one of the things that was fascinating to us, because my, uh, my co-directing partner and I, we really were just filmmakers. We're not activists. We're not... Um, you know, really that's necessarily even that socially motivated before we started the film. So as we were learning about this topic, you know, we, we've heard about the electric car so and we've heard about hydrogen being the, the thing of the future. But one of the things that we had learned that I didn't know was that uh, Rudolf Diesel, when he built the diesel engine, uh, was before petroleum really had come on the market as a right. fuel. And so he had, uh, uh, when he displayed that, uh, diesel engine at the World's Fair. He used peanut oil. Right, it was and vegetable oil. He was a big oil, yeah. proponent of vegetable oils as fuel, and and that idea of being, you know, this was at a time where where everything was local and sustainably grown because we didn't have this big infrastructure of transportation. Well, there was the the one singular exception of whale oil, which was decreasing in supply. But right, your point right. is well made. But so then, so then this this is this idea that we're talking about about buying local, locally produced, sustainable. This is an old idea. Right. This is not a new idea. And and so then this this de- as we were looking at it in California at the time, uh, they were starting to sell B ninety nine, which is almost a hundred percent biodiesel. Right. Uh, they had they were they were uh, opening up stations. Their the biodiesel refiner was like adding jobs. There were new companies that were opening up. This was really an, an exceptional boon. And what we found out actually that's not in the film is there was one of the biggest shippers, um, diesel shippers in California was doing a test run running this B99 in their trucks, and they were getting more, tur- more torque. They were getting better fuel economy. They were getting um, more power in the trucks. And this is a, a domestically produced renewable energy source that runs in existing engines. So it's not something that we have to do. Right. If we just took this idea and we started producing this fuel and just 
Yeah, well, it's look at Brazil. Fun. Half of their cars now are running biofuels. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. Scott, uh, excuse me, Jeremy Wagoner. Jeremy, I'm sorry we're out of time, but uh, people can check it out. Gashole, H-O-L-E, movie.com. Thanks so much for, for the great work you're doing. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able. As anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now we get to the buried lead in today's broadcast which involves our friend the Adam, although it's not Addie's. Addie's segment comes moments from now, but um, he's listening behind behind the uh, soundproof door. Here's the, uh, the lead of the story. The U.S. government could face fines of $75,000 a day if it fails to find a way to store or handle stockpiles of defense-related nuclear waste by 2035, according to the Government Accountability Office. So that's the lead is that. In a report this week, the GAO says the Energy Department initially planned to move the waste currently stored at locations in five states to Yucca Mountain. But the administration's efforts to abandon Yucca have leaving the, are leaving the department without a long-term solution. If the Energy Department cannot find a way to store or handle the waste in the next 24 years, it will eventually violate agreements it has with two of the states in which the waste is located. That's the uh, story. So, uh, so uh, the good people at Market Watch, that's the lead. But way down here, way, use your miner's helmet because here it is, comes this sentence. Because the law requires the U.S. government to be responsible for the waste, the government has to compensate the power plants for the cost of storing it. That's right. We agree to be responsible for the waste, ladies and gentlemen. What other business gets to say that? You, he, hey, you, government. Oh, no, we're we're self-sufficient, proudly market-based private industry. But here, government, take our waste. You're responsible. Thank you. We'll call you later if you don't do it. And now... Yeah, I'm right here. Okay. Our friend the Adam is, is in the room, is in the house, we're supposed to say now, aren't we? Or is that gone? No. He's still wearing baggy jeans and putting tattoos on women, so I guess we can still say in the house. Um, the scramble, if this doesn't twist your mind into even just a little knot, 
I'm not talking about, you know, a granny knot or something. Just a little, little tiny kink. Then you're not listening. The scramble to cool the Fukushima nuclear complex with seawater in the aftermath of the thing puts a spotlight on just how much cold water an atomic reactor needs to function, and not just in a crisis, just every day because of the thing. All existing nuclear plants use vast amounts of water as a coolant. In recent years, often far from the public eye, hot river and lake temperatures have forced nuclear power plants worldwide to decrease generating capacity. That's right. The warming that nuclear plants are supposed to help prevent is forcing the closing down of some nuclear plants because the water is too hot to cool them. You with me so far? Experts say the problem is only getting worse as climate change triggers prolonged heat waves, prompting calls for changes in siting processes. Yeah, that'll fix it. Move farther from the water. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did I miss something there? Quote, as a long-range strategy, the industry might change where we site new plants to have better use of water resources, said Gary Vine, an independent consultant. Vine has worked in the nuclear industry for decades and is a former employee of the Electric Power Research Institute, a, util- a, a utility group. There's also hope that new technologies will help mitigate the problem. Well, there always is, isn't there? And what happens to that? Why, it, it can't cost any energy to cool the water, can it? Can't take the U.S. Department of Energy is part of an international team working to design the next generation of nuclear plants, some of which will use less water than traditional plants. But the project faces numerous challenges, such as cost and implementation barriers. Cost? <laughs> implementation? No. The DOE anticipates that the new generation reactors will not be commercially available for at least two decades. And by then... Climate effects, says the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, must figure into a utility's decision to build nuclear facilities. Climate change studies published in research journals such as Science and the Journal of Climate project longer and more intense heat waves over the next century worldwide, adding constraints to water-intensive power systems. Nuclear plants, here's a little figure to stick in your craw. Nuclear plants consume up to 25% more water than fossil fuel plants. Just and, and and I have to say, because it's radio, Addy is sitting looking very proud of that right now. Hey, I'm busting my buttons. He is indeed. U.S. Nego- uh, U.S. regulators need to improve the security for used nuclear fuel stored in steel and concrete containers, according to a government watchdog. Hope they're feeding that dog. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has no central database of security-related information for so-called dry cask storage and doesn't have a comprehensive document outlining the roles and responsibilities of staff, according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's Inspector General. Regional offices also use different groups of employees to monitor gr- dry, cast, dry cask installations, so there's no forum for communication. These are the ways that waste is stored. Well, we can't put it in Yucca Mountain, you see. This could negatively impact NRC's mission to ensure adequate protection of public health and safety promote the common defense security, and protect the environment, according to the report. They need to improve the security for used nuclear fuel, you see. But no threat to public health by the lack of security. I'm sure they would say that if they 
had a spokesman to say that. Dayline Port Gibson, Mississippi, an unknown amount of radioactive water was released accidentally into the Mississippi River late last week. Because the river doesn't have enough problems. At the Grand Gulf Nuclear Station, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is investigating the incident. It suggests, this is the wording from the Natchez Democrat newspaper, the NRC suggests the release poses no public health hazard. That's a suggestion. <laughs> there are other suggestions that could be made. They suggest. Somebody somebody sat a while and thought about the choice of that verb. Insists? Uh, assures? No. Suggests. Entergy Nuclear, which operates Grand Gulf, filed a report with the NRC explaining that crews located standing water at the plant last week after the area experienced heavy rains. It's good for the mosquitoes. Water was found at Unit 2 Turbine Building, which is an abandoned, partially constructed building, and began pumping the raw water into the river. An alarm apparently alerted workers to the presence of our old friend Tritium. The pumps were turned off, stopping the flow. Investigators are not certain why tritium was in the stormwater or how it got there. God said it. Although the concentrations of tritium exceeded EPA drinking water limits, the release should not represent a hazard to public health because of its dilution in the river, says Lara Uselding, a PR person with the NRC. So I guess that's the suggestion. It shouldn't do it. It shouldn't be a health hazard. Okay, then. Tell the tritium. Tritium has several uses. Oh, I don't need to know how to use tritium. Information from the EPA suggests exposure to tritium increases the risk of developing cancer because tritium emits low-energy radiation and is processed through the human body quickly. It's considered one of the least dangerous radionuclides. And another problem. This time with emergency equipment at southeast Nebraska's Coopler nuclear station is adding to the cost of the plant's refueling shutdown, a cost that could hit power customers' pocketbooks. But it's cheap. The cost of the shutdown, originally budgeted at $31 million, has increased by $5 million as a result of the problem. The plant was taken offline in March for routine refueling operation. A problem with the, an emergency backup generator was discovered during a test. Same spokeswoman for NRC reports this. The generators can be critically important, as we've learned from Japan. The corporate nuclear business manager for the site said he doesn't know how much more it will cost ratepayers for electricity from other sources while the plant remains shut down because it is so darn cheap when it's running. Testing the evacuation of residents near U.S. atomic power plants would be difficult before an emergency, says the chairman of the NRC, Gregory Yaksko. Running mass evacuations on a trial basis is a challenge, he said. Answering a question from Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader? Really? Interesting. Evacuation plans are being examined in the agency's 90-day review after the uh, Fukushima thing. Nader said Yasko would be in charge of possibly the most difficult evacuation process in U.S. history in the event of a nuclear accident or reactor sabotage. He said real-life drills should be conducted of all evacuation plans. State uh, Yasko replied, state, local, and utility officials conduct exercises every two years at nuclear plants to test emergency communications. He called those a reasonable approximation for how the evacuations should work. Two words. Hurricane Pam. 
an exercise conducted among all state, local, and federal officials testing hurricane communications a year or two before Katrina. Check it out, Gregory. And Lower Alloway's Creek Township in New Jersey checks in with this cheery news. A southern New Jersey nuclear power plant has been taken offline for the third time in two weeks, so crews can clear vegetation that's blocking cooling water intakes. Yes, the Salem One reactor was taken offline. Uh, wasn't known when it will go back off- online. Officials blame the shutdowns on, and here's a new one for your dictionary, ladies and gentlemen, grassing. A problem caused by vegetation, weeds, and grasses that grow along the Delaware River and its tributaries. I bet it happens somewhere else, too. The vegetation becomes dislodged and floats downstream and can become especially troublesome in the spring. It's clean. It's cheap. It's safe. Just watch out for the grassing. Uh, Allie? uh, Addie? Watch out for the grassing on your way out. I'm aware of that. Thank you. As long as the grass grows, river flows. As long as the wind blows, that's how long will it fall eternity. For Galveston, Texas, the Deepwater Horizon disaster is terrible, but it's nothing new. The city on the Gulf Coast southeast of Houston has been through numerous spills, including the biggest in Gulf history. On June 3, 1979, an exploratory drilling rig off the coast of Mexico blew out. It caught fire, keeled over, and plunged into the wellhead area, damaging the drill pipe. This is from a news report from NBC's Today Show in August 1979. There is now a distinct possibility that oil spilling from that runaway Mexican well could spread as far as the Gulf Coast of Florida. That from an official of the EPA. As NPR's Wade Goodwin reports, that blowout was just the beginning for Galveston. The biggest difference between the Ixtoc 1 blowout in 1979 and the Deepwater Horizon is the depth of the water. Instead of 5,000 feet, the Ixtoc 1 was in 160 feet of water, which meant divers could easily get to the well. While that was nice because they didn't have platoons of underwater robots back then, it still took 10 months to cap the well. A nasty sheen of oil spread out across the water, while massive jets of natural gas belching from the ocean floor fed a continuous inferno of flame burning on the surface, its own little watery hell on earth. Between three and five million barrels of oil poured into the water. And at that time, we had about 170 miles of the South Texas coast coated with oil. West Tunnel is the associate director of the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M in Corpus Christi. Tunnel says the Ixtoc spill coated the beaches of South Texas to an extent and depth not seen with the deep water spill. It was about 20 to 30 feet in width and a half inch to one foot in thickness along the entire stretch of the South Texas coast. 
it was a mess. The Mexican oil company Pemex eventually called the Red Adair Company in Houston to shut it down. They did manage to close the well casing and put out the fire briefly, but then the well ruptured again, and because of the danger to the ships on the surface, the massive natural gas plume had to be relit so as not to accidentally blow everyone to kingdom come. In 1979, this all happened in relative obscurity. You can imagine the Monday morning quarterbacking if it were to have happened in 2010. For more than 100 years, the city of Galveston has lived by the Gulf and died by the Gulf. Tourism, shipping, and the oil industry, its lifeblood, hurricanes and oil spills, the bane of its existence. The seawall is like a long sidewalk park that runs most of the length of the island and in the 70s I remember it in the 80s just being polka dotted with black like a, a Dalmatian just up and down. Natalie Gober is BOI born on the island standing in front of the Henley Market on the Galveston Strand Gober remembers 1979 and 1980 locals in Galveston are famous for not going to the beach it's one of the many ways they differentiate themselves from the tourists but back in 1979, Gober was a young girl, still very much going to the water regularly. Yeah, just as a little kid, that was one of the hazards on the sand, was sitting in or stepping in tar. Kind of hard to get off. Cheryl Jenkins, manager of the Henley Market, remembers the tar, but doesn't recall that it was devastating to the island's tourist industry. It was just a fact of life, I and mean, it was just going to be tar. And you just had ways to clean it off your feet. You had baby oil and paper towels, and you just figured out ways to cope with it. The problem for many locals trying to remember back 30 years ago is that the disasters kind of run together. The Ixtoc blowout in 1979 was just the beginning of a series of environmental and natural catastrophes that hit the island over the next 10 years. Five months after the well blowout, the oil tanker, the Burma Agate, collided with the freighter Mimosa at the entrance to Galveston Bay, causing a massive explosion and fire. Ten million gallons of oil burned and spilled for two months. The water was filled with burnt petroleum product waste, as well as millions of gallons of oil that didn't burn. Then, in 1984, the British oil tanker Alvinus ran aground, cracking open the ship's main deck and spilling a massive volume of Venezuelan crude into the Gulf. 53,000 metric tons were in that ship. Jan Kagashaw was the mayor of Galveston back then. From that date for the next year... The island was cleaning up heavy crude. We just had to stop beach activity, and we had to start water blasting the seawall, which is uh, 10 miles long, to clean that up. So that was a huge project. It was a very difficult time. Three oil spills in five years, plus a Category 3 hurricane in 1983 named Alicia that tore Galveston up. It was a lot to recover from, not unlike the Gulf Coast today with Hurricane Katrina and the current oil spill. Nevertheless, Galveston rebuilt its hotels and restaurants, repeatedly cleaned its beaches and seawall of the oil. By the mid to late 1980s, the tourists were back in force. The local oyster, shrimp, and fishing industry slowly recovered, too. Although some oil from the Deepwater Horizon spill has made its way west to Galveston, it's been a very small amount. When you ask locals like Jack King, owner of La King's Confectionery, where for more than 30 years they've made their own candy, when you ask King if he remembers the aftermath of the Galveston oil spills of the 70s and 80s, he squints his eyes. Because this place has been here so long, and people now who came here as children are bringing their children back, we get a lot of phone calls that says, are you open again? Is Galveston back? I haven't yet have had anyone to ask me, 
is they're all on the beaches. So we're happy. Galveston has post-traumatic stress disorder. It's been so dazed by hurricanes, the oil spills seem nothing more than a nuisance, at least in retrospect. Jack King and his island are recovering from yet another devastating hurricane, Hurricane Ike, which plowed into Galveston September 13th in 2008 with a Category 5 storm surge. Most of the island went completely underwater and destruction was widespread. Galveston is once again crawling from the wreckage. The people of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida certainly know how they feel and can only hope that in 20 years they'll squint trying to remember their oil spill too. Wade Goodwin, NPR News. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Exxon paleontologists call for increased U.S. fossil production. It's the Onion Radio News. I'm Doyle Redland. A team of Exxon scientists released a report today calling for an immediate and substantial increase in U.S. fossils. At the current rate at which we are producing new fossils in this country, we will not have enough to meet our fossil fuel needs for another 12 to 1,500 million years. Dr. Jameson Lamb, Exxon urged Congress to establish incentives for the world's plants and animals to decay, sink deep into the Earth's crust, and fossilize no later than July. Doyle Redland for The Onion. Now, if it seems to you like the last couple of years have been unusually full of big weather disasters, you're not crazy. It's true. Well, you may be crazy, but it's still true. 2011 has broken the record for the most weather disasters costing more than a billion dollars in damage this early in the year. The U.S. has already had five weather disasters costing more than a billion dollars, and hurricane season hasn't even begun yet. What do you think the price would be today if it was based on fundamentals of just supply and demand? Four billion dollars in tax taxpayer subsidies every year. That's what the five biggest oil companies are fighting to keep in the midst of record gas prices and record oil industry profits. Despite a full court press by the oil industry and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Senate Democrats will attempt to vote to remove those subsidies this week, possibly as early as Tuesday night, and kill those subsidies to use the revenue instead to pay down the federal deficit. But Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said on Sunday the measure would not garner enough votes to pass. 
Finally, the climate change denial industry was hit with yet another blow this week when a major scientific journal formally withdrew a prominent study used by the denial industry on charges of plagiarism. What? The study, popularly known as the Wedgman Report, was federally funded on a request from House Republican Joe Barton, a prominent denier who famously apologized to BP last year for the BP oil disaster in the Gulf. So we have an actual study that was actually gamed, not by the climate scientists, but by the climate science denialists. And this, of course, on the heels of last year's fake controversy spread by Fox News, the so-called climate gate controversy, that climate scientists were putting out faked data. When investigation after investigation since then has found that they weren't, and now we find that it's the climate change denialists who were putting out the faked data. Knock me over with a feather. It's something unattainable that you can't live without. And now the unexplainable has you riddled with doubt. Things begin. Things decay. And you've got to find a way. and a National Geographic photographer is here to talk about endangered bees. I'll tell him I don't believe in the collective bargaining rights of worker drones. Please welcome Mark Moffat. Hey, Mark, good to see you again. Pleasure. Welcome back. Now, you, uh, uh, you are a, a, a longtime friend of the show. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you for meeting me here in a beautiful field of flowers. It's beautiful out here. And thank you for joining me at being the size of a bug. I try to, you know, shrink things down for people, make it simple. You, 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 uh, you study bugs for a living, correct? Yes. Okay. You, uh, you study ants, correct? I study ants, yes. Now, you're here uh, with a, a, a new story about pollinators. Okay, what's a pollinator, and why should I care about pollinating things. Well, pollinating uh, is something that plants need. You yeah. see, plants can't just walk up I'm not a plant, to, though. I'm not a plant. Plants can't walk up to another plant and have sex. It's not easy for plants. So they often have to have uh-huh. an animal intermediary carry the pollen to the next plant and, and do the deed. So a, a plant has to involve another creature between itself and the other plant. So every, all plant sex is at least a freaky three-way. Yeah, well, a lot of it is. And, you know, much of what you eat requires these animals, these pollinators. Uh, we wouldn't have apples and oranges. We wouldn't have some of my favorite foods like chocolate and coffee unless animals were working really hard on our behalf. Would we still have French fries? We could probably have a few spuds, but the really healthy okay. foods, the good stuff, mm-hmm. requires pollinators. Fruit roll-ups? Do we need... <laughs> I don't know what your diet is, but... yeah, French fries well. and fruit roll-ups. 
And French fry for ones. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, we had this. Uh, I heard a lot about these bees disappearing. Are, are bees, honeybees, and bees just disappearing? There was huge colony die-offs. It still happened. The bee colonies are down by about a third, and basically. The, the workers just abandon ship and leave the queen, and she dies. And we're do, we not know, actually, do we know why that is? We're not quite sure. We know we're stressing honeybees a lot because, you know, the average field of, like, alfalfa has a billion flowers, and these bees actually have to spend, like, 60,000 hours a, a day total time for one hive getting the work done of pollinating and making our food. How do and you so tell we, the bee to do the work? Why do you, you don't have to. You don't? They just do They're it? They're the hardest working domestic animals, dogs and horses don't do nothing compared to honeybees. And they're just, you know, the tip of the pollination iceberg because there are all kinds of species out there that create our foods. And they're essential. So I'm eating food created by animals. Yeah, well, is this... That, is that hygienic? Your, your suit there, uh, this suit? cotton. Cotton. Yeah, it's cotton, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, it's, it's that's wool, made by bees. Bees were involved in every fiber of that, pollinating uh, those cotton plants. Uh, 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 Einstein, I think, famously said that if, if bees disappeared, humanity would be dead in four years because we wouldn't have anything to eat. We, at, at the mass agriculture that we need now, we absolutely require bees. We require a lot of uh, these species. Many of the tropical fruits require bats and other kinds of So creatures. it's not just bugs, it's, it's literally big animals? And that's the fun thing about this story. I worked with a group called the Pollinator Partnership to come back with all kinds of great uh, new things that people probably haven't seen before, like there are lemurs in Madagascar that pollinate plants. There are... Uh, all kinds of geckos and even a slug can pollinate a plant. So many of these species out there are working all the time for us and to keep the environment safe and keep it active and growing. And what you you have this thing called pollinator.org. What what is that? Well, that's the play, uh, scientists working on pollination throughout North America. Uh, work with Pollinator Partnership, and that's their website. And you can go there and find out what's happening in terms of the disappearance or loss of uh, bees and uh, figure out what you should be actually planting in your backyard to support pollinators and keep them healthy. Uh, we don't want to poison them by putting the wrong pesticides in the wrong places, for example. So there's simple things you can do that you can find there. And the article was uh, uh, an attempt to summarize a lot of this and also just surprise people with some stories. You say that you say that pollen when it came along for the first time was like McDonald's for insects. Uh, it is McDonald's for insects. Yeah. It's uh, How come I don't see 800 pounds butterflies? Well, they burn it off. They do. Monarch butterflies. I can't for seem to burn off my McDonald's. <laughs> if you uh, flew south for the winter to Mexico and back, uh, like monarchs do, you would burn off your McDonald's french fries, I think. I don't go to Mexico anymore. It's too dangerous. <laughs> Mark Moffat, thank you so much.
Well, look who came to Columbus, Ohio. Our friend Addie, the Adam. Hello. It's cold. You shouldn't be cold. You make your own warmth. Don't you? Yeah, he's, he's, he's uh, sulking now. Uh, news, ladies and gentlemen, of our friend, the Adam, because there's so much of it today. Start with this. Japan won't be building any more nuclear plants. Prime Minister Naoto Kan said Tuesday Japan would abandon plans to build more nuclear reactors, saying his country needed to, quote, start from scratch in creating a new energy policy. An announcement came as Japan allowed residents of evacuated areas around the stricken Fukushima plant to briefly revisit their homes just to get a dose. The decision will mean the abandonment of a plan the Khan government released just last year to build 14 nuclear reactors by 2030 and increase the share of nuclear power in Japan's electricity supply to 50%. Japan already has 54 reactors. The cancellation of the planned nuclear plants is the second time Khan has suddenly announced big changes in Japanese nuclear policy without the usual long committee meetings and media leaks that characterize the country's consensus-driven decision-making process. He appears to be seeking a stronger leadership role after criticism of this government's sometimes slow and indecisive handling of the Fukushima incident. What's that? Uh, that's that nuclear barn door he's closing. The operator of the Tsuruga nuclear power station in central Japan said this week a minute amount of radiation leaked from the plant. Japan Atomic Power said the radiation was released from Tsuruga a week after the operator found higher levels of radioactive substances in coolant water. The two incidents, those are two separate incidents at this plant, nowhere near Fukushima, in eight days took place amid growing public concern in Japan about nuclear The Tsuruga plant is located on the west coast of Japan, some 500 kilometers. Anybody know what a kilometer is? Southwest of Fukushima was not affected by the disaster. Meanwhile... Here's an interesting here's an interesting little twist in uh, Addie's race across the world. Japan and the U.S. are in negotiations, according to this report. Negotiations with the Mongolian government over the possible construction of a storage facility for spent nuclear fuel. In answer to the question, well, why don't we just put it all in Outer Mongolia? The answer is, we're thinking of that. Officials from Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry and the U.S. Department of Energy held informal talks with their Mongolian counterparts to build such a facility shortly before Japan's earthquake, according to a Japanese newspaper, the Mainichi Daily. The plan would enable Japanese and U.S. nuclear plant exporters, including GE, well, it's Mongol imagination, to better counter the challenge from Russian and French companies in the global nuclear market by selling reactors and nuclear waste disposal services together as a set it's a match set the plants and the dumps in mongolia in return tokyo and washington would provide nuclear technology to mongolia <laughs> except for one thing mongolia says it's not true mongolia has not been in talks about importing nuclear waste from other companies uh, countries according to its embassy in vienna the country's 2009 nuclear energy law, quote, does not envisage import of nuclear waste from other countries, said the statement from the embassy. So I guess that means price wasn't high enough. Try again, boys. One of the reactors at the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant has a hole in its main vessel. That's a good thing, right? 
following a meltdown of fuel rods leaking to, uh, uh, leading to a leakage of radioactive water, its operator said this week. But that's a good thing. Seriously, isn't it? It's got to be. Otherwise, why would they? The disclosure by TEPCO is the latest indication that the disaster was worse than previously disclosed, making it more difficult to stabilize the plant. The discovery of the leak provides new insight into the sequence of events that triggered the partial meltdown. The battle to bring Fukushima under control has been complicated by repeated leaks of radioactive water. Workers have been pumping water into at least three of the six reactors to bring their nuclear fuel rods to a cold shutdown, but after repairing a gauge in the number one reactor this week, TEPCO discovered the water level in the vessel that contains its nuclear fuel rods had dropped about 16 feet below the targeted level, which would cover the fuel under normal operating conditions. There must be a large leak, says Junichi Matsumoto, general manager of the utility. The fuel pellets likely melted and fell and in the process may have damaged the pressure vessel itself and created a new hole. U.S. nuclear experts now say the company may have to build a concrete wall around the unit because of the breach, and this could now take years. But wait, there's more. There's so much more. Addy? I'm ready. Okay. Nuclear plant emergency generators like those that failed in Japan also failed during tests, tests at the Seabrook Station in New Hampshire and 32 other U.S. plants in the past eight years, according to a report by a U.S. congressman who was opposed to nuclear powers, uh, Congressman Edward Markey. This was uh, issued at, at the same during the same time frame that a federal task force vouched for the safety of the nation's nuclear plants. The Seabrook incident, according to the report, took place in August 2006 when the plant shut down because of inoperable emergency diesel generators. The generators were inoperable for just one day. The problem occurred when one of the two backup generators was taken down for routine maintenance and a voltage problem occurred at the other. It was quickly repaired, but NRC rules require the plant to shut down if a certain number of generators are not operational. The New York Times reported this week that despite repeated assurances that American nuclear plants are better equipped to deal with natural disaster than their ones in Japan, regulators said this week recent inspections had found serious problems with some emergency equipment that would have made it unusable in an accident. In addition, the staff at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission acknowledged the agency's current regulations and disaster plans did not give enough consideration to two factors that had greatly contributed to the disaster in Japan. Simultaneous problems at more than one reactor couldn't happen, and a natural disaster that disrupts roads and electricity and other infrastructure surrounding a plant. <laughs> couldn't happen. Coolant is escaping through a newly discovered opening at the Fukushima plant, a development that could slow efforts to prevent further potential radiation releases from the facility. And there's this. Bad news for Addy. No. Yes. The 440 commercial nuclear reactors in use worldwide, around the world, as Wolf Blitzer would say, are currently helping to minimize our consumption of fossil fuels. But how much bigger can nuclear power get? In an analysis to be published in an issue of the Proceedings of the IEEE, the International Electric and Electronics Engineers Organization, Derek Abbott, professor of both kinds of engineering, 
at the University of Adelaide has concluded that nuclear power cannot be globally scaled to supply the world's energy needs. Global power consumption today, he says, is about 15 terawatts. We know now tera from terabytes. He estimates to supply 15 terawatts with nuclear only, we would need 15,000 nuclear reactors. He explores the consequences of building, operating, and decommissioning 15,000 reactors on Earth. A nuclear power station is resource-hungry and apart from fuel uses many rare metals in its construction. The dream of a utopia where the world is powered off fusion or fission reactors is simply unattainable. Even a supply of as little as one terawatt, he says in his report, stretches resources considerably. First, simply finding 15,000 locations with enough land near enough water is challenging. Every nuclear power station, he says, needs to be decommissioned after 40 to 60 years of life due to neutron embrittlement. Oh, yeah, I hate that. Cracks that develop on the metal surfaces due to radiation. Then with 15,000 nuclear power stations, one new station would need to be built and another decommissioned somewhere in the world every day. Considering it takes six and a half years to build a nuclear station and up to 20 years to decommission one, he finds this unrealistic. There's the matter of nuclear waste. It's uncertain whether burying the spent fuel and the spent reactor vessels, which are also highly radioactive, he says in his report, may cause radioactive leakage into groundwater or the environment via geological movement. Based on the accidents so far, 11 nuclear accidents at the level of a full or partial core melt, Scaling up to 15,000 reactors would mean we would have a major accident somewhere in the world, major nuclear accident somewhere in the world, every month. Maybe even in February. And then there's the matter of uranium. Uh, Abbott, in his report, says that the current rate of consumption... The world supply of viable uranium will last about 80 years. Scaling consumption up to 15 terawatts, the viable uranium supply will last for less than five years. And uh, uh, nuclear vessels are made of a variety of exotic rare metals. We'd run out of those, he says. In any future generation nuclear reactors, whether they're fueled by uranium or thorium, many of these same problems would plague fusion reactors. So he concludes, due to the cost, complexity, resource requirements, and tremendous problems that hang over nuclear power, our investment dollars would be more wisely placed elsewhere. What does he know? Uh, Addy. Addy got his Addy up. Clean, cheap, safe. Too bad to meter. Nuclear power, ladies and gentlemen. Addy, you going now? Eh. I'll just stay here. Sulk. You'll stay here and sulk.
Okay, Des, another deadly couple of days in the Midwest as tornadoes rip across the country. Yes, it's another outbreak. Thirteen people were killed on Tuesday, most of them in Oklahoma, as was captured in dramatic live coverage by an Oklahoma City TV crew. Yeah, it's a, it's a look how big it is, Morgan. It's a, it's oh, gonna... my gosh. Maxi tornado coming into no. Piedmont. Piedmont, get out of the way. Piedmont, get out of the way. Get below ground right now. Get to your safe room, storm cellar, basement, interior closet or bathroom. May not do it. Get out of the way. Get out of the way or get below ground. It's remarkable that there were still so many deaths, even with the sophisticated monitoring equipment and the live monitoring. Indeed, our tornado forecasting and warning systems now are extraordinarily advanced. And yet we are still looking right now at the most deadly tornado season since 1953, when they had nowhere near the type of warning systems that we have now. Yes, new statistics from the National Weather Service show that April 2011 was officially the worst month for tornadoes ever recorded in the United States. And the deadly Alabama tornadoes last month were the largest outbreak on record. And as you said, even with our most sophisticated monitoring systems, 2011 is now the deadliest year for tornadoes since 1953. What was it that those fraudsters, those hoaxers were, uh, you know, climate scientists have been telling us for decades about these storms, Des? (laughs) That that they would indeed become more deadly as we see more intense and extreme weather events occur more often. Hi, Jay. It's Dominic from Castle Rock, Colorado, calling in regards to your most recent global warming podcast. And I was uh, thinking that the environment and energy legislation is the most important issue that we can deal with and that we have to deal with as soon as possible. And the reason for that is if we don't stop what we're doing with coal and oil and petroleum and carbon, we're going to cause some global warming that we aren't going to be able to turn around, and we're reaching that point right now. And as a young person, I fear that if we don't stop what we're doing with coal and carbon, we're going to destroy the planet for hundreds or thousands of years. So I think we need to deal with energy legislation first, and then once we get that finished, work on social issues like gay marriage, voting rights, abortion rights, because all of the social issues can be dealt with relatively quickly in comparison to global warming, which will last longer than any of us can imagine. So that's all I've got to say. Thanks a lot for the show. Hey, this is Patrick from Dallas. Um, just calling with a comment on the uh, Chamber of Commerce funding slash uh, Planned Parenthood funding uh, letter that you read on your most recent episode. Uh, I had the same thoughts when uh, when they were discussing that uh, about how the, the same people or certainly the same side, Republicans who seem to be claiming that the uh, Chamber of Commerce funding was not fungible and they had the accounting to prove it, trust me, uh, then turned around and talked out of the other side of their mouth and claimed that the Planned Parenthood funding was fungible. And so I, I think that simply all we would be asking for is consistency. Either, you know, uh, the Chamber of Commerce needs to provide the accounting 
and show where the monies are coming from and see whether that moves them into a whole different area of uh, election law um, or they need to not make the comments about the, the Planned Parenthood. And, and I think that and this is one of those cases where, you know, the letter of the law is specific. Medicine is billed as fee for service. You birth control pills, they're banned for the birth control pills. So it, it's not the same thing as paying for abortion. You could argue that at the end of the day, some of the funding for the building is coming from this or that. But when you're paying fee for service, you know, and some one particular group is paying for one thing but not something else, if they didn't buy any of the something else, that's not where those funds came from. And so even though it all keeps the grocery store open or the plan bear note open or whatever. So anyway, uh, two cents, uh, uh, two fungible cents worth of, of thought on the topic. Thanks. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Shane from Cleveland. I'm calling to respond on about the comments you made regarding federal funding for Planned Parenthood. Um, I work in a nonprofit as well, and we receive some federal reimbursements for our programming. And I think it's it's inaccurate to to say that because they receive any sort of federal reimbursements, you can make the case that that money is going towards abortion. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the way it works with us and likely Planned Parenthood, though I haven't researched it, is we get federal funding for a certain program, and that money goes towards the budget for that specific program. And the budget includes the percentage of staff time uh, for that program, the percentage of utilities for that program, the food used for that program, the equipment for that program. Uh, and it's all down to you know a percentage, down to the actual number of you know, say clipboards you need for that specific program. Um, so if we get $200,000 in reimbursements from the government, uh, we don't, you know, take it and apply it to other programs. We don't take it and apply it to our general operating. We use it really um, for that specific program, for that program only. And we count it towards our uh, quote unquote fundraising for that uh, program. So I don't, and I, and I, and I don't think it's just a technicality to kind of make that claim. I, I think, uh, while they, while they might not be two completely separate, actually divided pools of money that exist in different spaces, uh, we nonprofits traditionally treat it as very different money. Uh, so if you can get, you know, federal reimbursement for 97% of uh, your program, say, which they probably can't, but say they could, uh, that would go towards 97% of the salaries of these doctors and 97% of the time for, the, for hospital rooms or for programming. And that 3% would, would absolutely come from different sources. So like I said, while the money might technically be commingled in the, in the electronic world and the banks and anything else, it really is treated as separate money. So just uh, my thoughts on that. Uh, I understand you said you're not necessarily, you know, an expert in, in those sort of things. And uh, I thought maybe I could offer some insight. All right. Uh, as I said, love the show. Uh, bye.
Thanks to listen everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. I just want to do a couple of reminders today uh, and before I go, and I'm going to, again, play some more uh, voicemails at the end of the show. We're almost wrapped up with the uh, excess of uh, you know the huge pile of voicemails that have come in uh, responding to the Bin Laden death. Um, so we're getting close to the end of those, but I'm going to play more uh, after the show ends today. So as I've been saying, stick around for that if you like, or skip it if you don't. Uh, today, I just want to remind you again about uh, Stitcher.com. The Stitcher service is actually a fantastic service and free, and, uh, and they have a special promotion going on right now. Uh, if you sign up and use the promo code BEST, as in letting them know that I was the one who sent you to them, as you, uh, as you activate your Stitcher account through one of their mobile a- applications, either uh, the Apple iOS, Android, BlackBerry, or Pre, uh, you can get the Stitcher application and uh, listen to this and thousands of other shows streamed directly to your phone without syncing, without taking up space on, uh, on the hard drive of the device. And as you sign up, if you use the promo code BEST, you get entered to win $100 uh, just because they like you so much. So definitely check that out. Of course, there is a link to do that directly from bestoftheleft.com. That's my website. And so you can find it there located prominently near the top of the page. And while you're there, I would also like you to, to remind you about donateyouraccount.com. Uh, I started doing this a little while ago and haven't mentioned it um, as often as I probably should. This is a fantastic way for you to actually donate your Twitter account to Best of the Left, meaning uh, you know, if you're familiar with Twitter, you can promote what other people have said by doing what's called retweeting and uh, donate your account actually allows you to do that automatically meaning if you you know trust me as a source and you you want to give me access to uh, to do no more than a, a maximum of one tweet per day so I'll never you know fill up and flood your uh, flood your system or anything like that but um, you can do you know one tweet per day one per week or even one per month if you want to be really conservative. And uh, donating your account means that I just get to uh, send out a message that will get to your followers and help spread the word about the show or progressive politics in general or, you know, promote a certain clip that I you know wanted to play or uh, anything along those lines. Of course, it'll always be political, not offensive, all those sorts of things. So uh, so you don't have to worry about me uh, offending the sensibilities of your followers. So again, that is Donate Your Account. You can find it at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft, or as always, it is, of course, linked up at bestoftheleft.com, conveniently located right under the stitcher.com promotion near the top of the page. So now I just want to thank a couple of members before I go. RGP signed up uh, for a Leftist Monthly membership back on August 12th and has stuck with the show since then, so uh, thank you very much for hanging in there. And Roy Dell S. signed up for a uh, Leftist membership as well back on April 16th and went ahead and signed up for a full year in advance, so huge thanks uh, to Roy Dell for uh, that vote of confidence uh, paying for the full year in advance. Uh, so Roy Dell, Argy, and all of the members and donors to keep the show going, I couldn't do it without you guys course everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it stay tuned into us between episodes and help spread the word online by joining up with us on facebook and twitter for all the details about the show including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com 
of bin Laden and the Mujahideen long before uh, uh, it was really a known topic in the, in the West. I was deeply disturbed with the celebrations that went on. And really what I found, it was something that was, you know, at least in New York, was very much uh, limited to the young. And uh, the older folks that I know, you know uh, let's say 30 and older, uh, grown-ups, shall we say, didn't really seem to have much of that, you know, youthful ebullience about it. Uh, they understood that it was something that happened, something that may or may not have had to happen. I don't know that I agree. I think we should have, uh, I think we should have shown uh, to live by our principles and actually put him through the trial process, the adjudication process. But I found it really disturbing, the displays of, of cheering by kids. And really kind of angered me. In fact, uh, whenever I've traveled around the country, I've found that the further away I've gotten from New York, from Ground Zero, the more jingoistic people tend to get. The more chest beating I tend to hear, the more trash talking I tend to hear. Sort of a chair-borne chicken hawk syndrome. Uh, you know, usually the people that talk the toughest are the, about military uh, endeavors are the ones that haven't served. But the young lady that you you had on, who spoke about her experiences being very young, her feelings about how the death of Bin Laden was a relief to her, about how he was a dark cloud that she grew up under, I understood. Uh, I understood that because that was those were my feelings watching the Berlin Wall fall as a child of the Cold War and as a uh, child of Eastern European Eastern European emigres exiles. So I want to thank you, Jay, that, that I think it's, you know, that it's it's given me a chance to view it differently. It, uh, watching the, the cheering had left me feeling very bitter and very, with a bad taste in my mouth. And while it doesn't really taste much better, now at least I feel like I can grasp why somebody who's all 20 years old can be cheering about the death of a, any man. Uh, was it Thomas Dunn, the death of any man? No man is an island, so any man's death diminishes me. Anyhow, thanks, Jay, for letting me ramble. I tried to keep it as brief as possible, uh, trying not to break down from this again. Um, and, you know, now that I travel a bit, but I'm making a point of being in New York on the 11th for the, uh, for the 10th anniversary. And um, to all the people out there that are trying to work their way through this, uh, you know, I wish you all well. Again, Jay, thanks for the opportunity to share. Bye.